We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome, and we're going to get going. Uh, my name is Jeremy Elledge. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I head up New View Healing Solutions, uh, and we partner with the Evolution Foundation. I'm also a member of the Evolution Foundation, doing great things in our state coalition building and, and putting together awesome events uh, for our communities throughout. Uh, and so we're a, a provider of continuing education. Uh, and we do that for mental health professionals, uh, you know, our fellow mental health professionals. I'm a social worker. Hello to my fellow social workers. Uh, we also provide continuing education to case managers, LPCs, and LMFTs. But we started this organization because Oklahoma is number one in the nation for ACEs, number one for uh, childhood trauma, number one for family trauma uh, in the United States of America. Uh, and so uh, we started this organization because we wanted to do something about that. Uh, I'm proud to be one of a limited number of trauma specialists in Oklahoma trained by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Um, and so uh, and we appreciate folks who support us for getting their their continuing education. And we want to make training that's real and, and uh, that really helps people help people. Uh, and we want to make it affordable, too, because uh, a lot of training is expensive and it's not even that good. So uh, we want to, uh, you know, do the best that we can to contribute to our field. Um, and we, we can do something about our injured state, but we're going to want to help every safe adult know about the injuries of trauma and what they can do about that. So uh, one of the things we do want to help you have you guys help us plug uh, is the fact that we do free training for all police departments and free training for all schools. Uh, I know I talked with you, Miss Terry. We uh, hopefully do something for some of the schools out that way. We don't ask a dollar from uh, any of our systems of care that need care. Uh, so we're just uh, there to, to make a difference. And so uh, give us a shout or, or let folks know uh, if you find what we're talking about uh, interesting, meaningful, or helpful. Uh, if you want a copy of today's presentation, shoot us an email, info at newviewhealingsolutions.org, and Will usually puts it in the subject line or the comments or uh, the chat, whatever. Uh, and so uh, I am vision impaired. And so I am not going to read you my PowerPoint presentation today. And my good friend and bro, Will, a uh, fellow social worker, soon to be licensed and member of the team, uh, is, is my eyeballs today and helping me with the tech. Uh, and so I appreciate you, brother. Appreciate Evolution Foundation. Appreciate my DMH friends and family. Uh, as you guys know, uh, some of you, I'm a DMHer. And so, but anyway, I appreciate your something. And this is our something. I, if I depressed you a little bit earlier today about um, about generational trauma and what it's doing to our state and to our people and to our future, then to, then this part is going to hopefully uh, answer some of the questions on what we do about that. And so uh, so so anyway, we're going to roll with it. Um, but the the name of today's presentation is called Healing Injured Parenting. 
And so uh, that's, I believe, one of the most important answers that we have to, you know, to the problems of generational trauma in our state. Um, and so we're not going to be able to heal every parenting relationship. And indeed, some are not ever going to be safe or healthy or appropriate uh, parenting figures. And so obviously, uh, I, I want to only work with parents that are going to be, you know, be safe uh, and not uh, put their kids at, you know, in any further risk for abuse, neglect, or harm. Uh, but but uh, I started um, this um, presentation because of a program that I'm starting in Cleveland County, and it's something that I hope to make available in some other counties as well, uh, because uh, I used to teach parenting classes for about a decade at CCFI here in Norman, uh, some of you guys may be familiar, Center for Children and Families, and it had some pretty decent curriculum. Um, but one of the things that I think is missing is helping parents address their own injuries and what that's done to their parenting instincts, what that's done to their norms, uh, what that's done for their forms of expression and coping, you know, for what feelings look and sound like when we're talking with kids. But first, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence. Does anyone uh, have thoughts on on what it means to be emotionally intelligent. It's a term I hear uh, increasingly uh, in the world today. What does emotional intelligence mean? Is it being like emotionally aware? Absolutely, uh, emotionally aware. Uh, I, I, I like her answer. Uh, who uh, Other answers. Okay, well, we don't have any, any, anyone else that's got answers. So me and that, that lady are the only ones that are emotionally aware today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but emotional intelligence is something that when I'm working with kids and with families, you know, people ain't broke and I'm not trying to fix them. You know, I said ain't, I shouldn't. People aren't broken and I am not a fixer. Uh, in fact, most people, I really believe that they need good information and encouragement. And so, um, you know, people are the experts of their own life. And if we can give them the tools to navigate this situation and to better understand their own experience, their own brain and their body and their injuries, uh, their emotional capacities, then, then, you know, we really have empowered uh, true healing. You know, the medical model says, uh, you know, people are jacked up and they're sick and they're, you know, and, and they're you know, kind of these... I don't know, pathetic wretches that come to these fancy experts and we're going to fix them with our enlightenment and our tools and our, our fancy knowledge and, and everything. But really, uh, the, the injury model is a more appropriate model for healing. And the injury model says that any, anybody can be injured. And if we understand how to navigate our injuries, we can get better. Um, and, and so um, so, so anyway, uh, one obviously empowers the, 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 the survivor and the other empowers the system that, you know, um, makes lots of money to not help anyone get any better. Uh, but anyway, not always that's cynical. Um, so, so anyway, emotional intelligence though, uh, when I'm talking with kids and with families, I say, you know, if we're working in treatment, if we're doing something like treatment, uh, it's it's a it's a, an important serious process. And if you're building a house, you can't start with the roof, you know, it just falls down on the ground. You got to make a firm foundation. And terms like emotional intelligence are going to mean by firm foundation. 
I, this is a, a concept and an understanding and a language that I want them us to all operate from in, in our treatment process. So emotional intelligence, you're right, it's about emotional awareness. What we know emotions are these feelings, these capacities that we have in our brain. Um, and, and so uh, now no feeling is right or wrong, scientifically speaking. We're born with every one of those capacities and, and even really unpleasant emotions. We're born with those abilities to get mad, to get sad, to get scared, to get embarrassed, to get, you know, we have all these capacities, so we must need them all for something. So there's no such thing as bad or wrong emotions. Um, but but we're going to be more intelligent about our emotions and about those capacities. And for me, it's about understanding our brain a little bit better. Because um, as I watch our world become increasingly injured and hypervigilant, as I see people, you know, injured people reacting to injured people reacting to injured people, I'm wondering where did it all end? Um, and, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, emotional intelligence is something we're all real need, needing a lot right now um, in our world uh, because there's so many goofballs out there that doesn't really know how to use their brain. People have really great brains that they're not using. Um, and, and so so anyway, um, I want to perform a, a brief experiment with you guys right now. Um, and so no response is required. So this will not open you up to any embarrassment or vulnerability. Uh, so but what this uh, is doing, I'm going to ask you to think about your emotional state right now, your feelings, what you'd feel if you said your feelings with words, how you're feeling right now. And you don't have to say it. Uh, in fact, if there's, you know, very many people on there, we'd probably be on here for a while getting feelings check-ins. And so that's okay. But when you're doing that, you're actually using your cerebral cortex. That's the top part of your brain. And you're using it to look down inside of your brain into your limbic system and to, you're seeing what it's doing. And so in that process, you can gain some awareness. Uh, now, um, evidence shows if I know how I feel and why I feel that way, my trigger or my feeling or my need, uh, then I'm less likely to react or let my feelings out in ways that I don't want my feelings to come out, which we all do sometimes, or to hold them in and suppress feelings in a way that might make me sick and that will almost certainly uh, fail to address my need. And so, uh, so, so emotional intelligence is about uh, understand how our brain works. You know, uh, I'm not going to break down, you know, intense neuroscience with you because I'm, I'm not a neurologist. I'm a social worker. You know, shout out to my fellow social workers. Um, but uh, but but one of the things I am fascinated by the brain and and as we understand it, we become conscious of it. And so a lot of people feel like they're just along for the ride with whatever their brain does, with however they react in the situation. That's just how they felt, you know, and a lot of people don't even recognize their feelings until they've already been reacted or acted upon or suppressed in a way that, that, that you know, the need has gone on by. It's about uh, understanding our brain and our, and our body. But uh, let's think about our brain as far as two parts, cortex, limbic system, smart brain, feelings brain. And so those two are two very separate, distinct structures and functions in our brain. And so uh, our prefrontal cerebral cortex, that houses all of our uh, really complex intellectual capacities, memory and, and thinking and, and planning and problem solving, 
you know, that's where our ration and logic takes place. And so, uh, and in fact, human beings, we have the biggest cerebral cortex pound for pound. We have 16 billion neurons in our cerebral cortex. That's a big old brain. You know, and pound for pound, it's the biggest in the universe that we know of. Now, we know that elephants, apes, whales have bigger brains, but their cerebral cortex and their massive body size requires that they spend so much of their time feeding and, and you know, consuming calories constantly in order to support their massive size. Now, we have big brains, fairly little bodies, and so we have the ability to think about thinking. Think about that. We're think you think about thinking. So, um, so when you guys were thinking about you know how you would put your feelings into words, uh, you became more aware of your own emotional state, your own emotional capacity, and you became less reactive to it. Uh, a lot of people react to their feelings, and what emotional intelligence allows us to do is to slow a reaction down uh, to a decision. And so uh, so we want to understand our different feelings and what we have feelings for, because no feelings are bad or wrong, but some feelings get associated or encoded with dysfunctional data. You know, I was telling you guys earlier, our young brain is constantly sucking up data and it doesn't have a goalie or, a, you know, a defender. It lets in all the data. And that, and, and uh, you know, I call those cognitive cookies. They're going into the cognitive cookie jar. And so later on, you know, when kids are, you know, are looking at their adults and their caregivers and the people around, and they're soaking up data for what emotions look like and sound like. And so, uh, and hopefully they're only learning from Mr. Rogers and all really wholesome, healthy examples of, of what emotions look and sound like. But again, our kids are, you know, being pounded with detrimental familiarities. Our emotional capacities are here to help us. They're to help us navigate life. And a lot of people are learning to hurt themselves with their own natural responses. Um, and, and so to, to be destructive to themselves and their family and to fail to address their own needs. And so emotional intelligence helps us address that. Um, but we're going to you know, know how we feel and why we feel that way. And I have put emotions into four different categories in this book that I'm writing. Uh, and so and, and I'll just tell you about the categories really quickly, because in each session, I'm going to ask a, a person what their feelings are. And then what their goals are. And I'm gonna, we're gonna look at these capacities in these categories to say, what's this emotion trying to tell me? You know, what is this, what need is trying to be identified in my physiological emotional response? You know, and one of the things that we do is we get into later on uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, we also see that a lot of people have adapted to dysfunction. Uh, and so, and we have to help people uh, learn to challenge that because I'm not going to just tell people to think more positively. I don't think um, that's particularly helpful at all. Um, but one of the things that we can help people learn how to use their brain in a more productive way. When we challenge thoughts that don't benefit us, we can have better access to our cerebral cortex. When we help people cope and calm down and, and calm down the stressed system and the limbic reactivity, we have greater access to our intellect. You know, because, um, you know, stressed people, emotional people aren't able to draw on their own intelligence. Uh, and so this is really about mastering our own brain and not just being along for the ride, drug along with what our brain has learned to do 
because uh, a lot of us didn't always have the greatest examples of what to do. So, um, you know, one of the things that I want to talk with you guys about today is our capacity to change our brain. You know, that's something I'm really psyched about is we have the ability uh, to influence the ongoing development of our brain based on what we do. But anyway, uh, the four categories real quick that I'll tell you, uh, there's anger and sadness. I call those negative motivators. You know, our, our brain is trying to reject or change or defend or problem solve uh, an, out, you know, an outcome that, that does, we don't like. Anger and sadness. And so um, we're attempting to make the situation better if we can. And then, you know, a lot of times what we'd have to do is if it's a loss, we may have to accept that loss. Uh, but uh, the next category is fear and stress responses. Fear and stress responses help us react quickly uh, and instinctively to, th to a threat or perceived threat. Um, but if we that if we have to use that too often, then it harms us. You know, again, our brain is use dependent. And so the more our nervous system is activated for fear, it's like a muscle and it becomes overdeveloped and it becomes prone to spasm and it wants to work on its own when not even activated. And so that's when we see some of the lingering impacts of trauma or chronic stress. Um, and, and so, and I think that's the next slide, isn't yeah, it? Well, huh, there you go. So, um, so, so injuries of trauma and chronic stress. And uh, our, our brain functions with electrical impulses. You know, it was, uh, I, I'm reminded, I'll just tell you guys this little story Robert told me. Robert is a member of the evolution team, a uh, dear friend and brother and mentor and all, all that. Uh, he uh, was telling me about an experience with severely mentally ill patients in an institution. And he said that a little lady walked up to him and, you know, it was clearly very mentally ill and said, she looked up at it and said, God is electricity. Uh, and he, you know, didn't pay it much thought at the time, but you know, our heart functions with, a, you know, it beats because of electricity, our brain, uh, you know, it functions, we can literally light up a light bulb based with our own brain. Uh, so, so anyway, um, so our emotional capacities, our electrical impulses that indicate our emotions, we can get too much of those. We can get too much of our own physical or emotional pain response, and it leaves a lasting impression on our brain and on our body, and that is measurable, you know, and I think that's really important for us to understand. Now, if somebody's black and blue and broken boned, uh, we can tell, you know, if they're in a clinic being treated for, you know, assault or something else, we can tell, but sometimes those injuries heal on the outside, uh, and, and um, you know, a lot of times we can't tell what you know, how somebody's been injured. Um, again, trauma changes our brain, heart, nervous system in measurable ways. Told you guys that earlier today. It alters our uh, physical uh, development, our pubic development, our social, emotional, and physical development. Um, so so uh, it's a real injury, and people don't walk around with brain scanners and heart monitors on. So if the bruises and the outside stuff has healed, uh, people still may be very, very injured. And that's important for us to understand in this line of work because injured people hurt your feelings, make you mad, live and do ways, express and cope in ways that we wouldn't agree with um, sometimes. And so we have to understand uh, the injuries of trauma and chronic stress. And I told you guys, tr chronic stress is similar, has a very similar impact to our brain and body on our injuries. Uh, but it is um, less noticeable 
because chronic stress can be having a really stressful job or having a really stressful family or, you know, just not having anything that specifically beat you up or hurt you or run you over or assaulted you, but stressed you out enough. Um, and it's a bit more insidious in those impacts because we, we try to give consideration to the person that we know has been through a lot. Um, but the person who's chronically stressed, we we might not know that they're injured at all. Um, and and then they may be crabby or they may have uh, maladaptive coping mechanisms. You know, they may eat or drink or, you know, express in, in ways that we don't agree with. And so we might judge and punish somebody for being injured. And so that's one of the things. Now, um, I work with a lot of injured families, as you guys uh, probably do as well. Uh, and one of the things that that I want to um, I don't want to shame, uh, you know, parents for for being injured, because, of course, uh, they don't want to hear what I have to say. Um, so so I think part of it is it's it's helping people understand their own injuries. First, I had a parent tell me, well, I was raised that way and I'm just fine. Well, Part of me wanted to say, well, fine is debatable at best, sir. Uh, but no, uh, but the reality was he had a lot of resilience. And and I, you know, I dare say um, he uh, I, I told him, sir, I think you're you're you are fine. I said, but, you know, a lot of your strength, you know, probably came uh, in spite of those injuries, not because of them, you know, and, and so. Um, so anyway, helping people understand uh, injuries is is really key to changing injured patterns of behavior because injured people do injured things. Injured behaviors make us more injured. You know, they, 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 it hurts us. It hurts our families. It hurts our communities. Uh, our communities are hurting right now. So uh, so emotional intelligence and understanding trauma informing our society really is the answer. Uh, and, and so. Um, you know, I, I've heard, you know, trauma-informed language, and it's kind of trendy, you know, but it, it needs to be more than trendy. We need to understand if we're going to heal. Um, I got this uh, method um, that I've developed over the years. I've had just really blessed opportunities for learning. And so um, I, uh, but over time, you know, I got to learn from some really neat experts. And, you know, I was fresh out of college, so they're like, here, you're going to go learn from Bruce Perry. I was like, okay, who's that? Cool. Uh, and so, and I got to spend 12 weeks learning from that guy. And I got to learn from some of the, the founders of the, uh, the TFCBT model, you know, and uh, the, you know, Joe Benamati and, you know, and Sandy Bloom from the Sanctuary and Start models. It was all, all learning's new learning when you're fresh out of the gates. But I didn't know that I was a part of something, that, you know, stepping into something big. Um, and so, so anyway, um, but over time, uh, as I'm listening to this modality and this concept and this theory and this, you know, this research, it started to kind of come together in my mind, you know, the puzzle pieces, uh, you know, uh, some of them have uh, kind of become more clear, but identify challenge and change is something that I want to teach. And so I want to first I identify our injuries. You know, if people, you know, back in history class, you had a timeline, remember your timelines and you'd plot all these things on the timeline. And so people, we have our own timeline. And I think it's important for us to go back in that timeline and see where we got injured. You know, when we were, when we were little, when we were in adolescence, when we got injured. Uh, and then I think it's important for us to identify where we started to develop ne negative maladaptive coping. 
One of the reasons we have those ACEs outcomes is because injured kids that didn't have the understanding or complexity or safety uh, to, to really heal, um, you know, they developed maladaptive coping because injured people do injured things. And when you're hurting bad, you're not walking around thinking, gosh, I sure am hurting bad. What's the best and most rational and healthy way to relieve myself of this pain? No, when you're in pain, you want out however you can get out of it. And so, um, so again, uh, a lot of kids uh, developed maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, and what slide are we on? Healing your brain. Oh yeah, healing your brain. So yeah, well, he's got to keep me on track a little bit. Uh, so half hour. Okay, that's great. That's great. So we we identify um, the injuries, the maladaptive coping, and um, and and the impacts that it's had on us. Um, you know, the impacts that it's had on our parenting. What's the last couple of bullets on that one, Will? Uh, forgiving ourselves for being injured. Oh yeah, yeah. So so one of the things um, that I, injured people do injured things. If I look at the ACEs study and look at somebody's ACEs score without ever meeting the individual. I'd have a like a 90% accuracy predictor of what kind of problems they were developed would develop in adolescence and adulthood without even ever knowing the person. Injured people do injured things, and it is a phenomenon. It is not an excuse. Our, our prisons are full of injured little boys and injured little girls that didn't know how to quit being injured. And of course, there's a system waiting to chop them up. You know, a very a profitable prison system that likes to lock people up. America locks up more of its citizens than anywhere, any nation in the world. And Oklahoma's leading the forefront of that. And it's not because we got so many bad people, it's because we got so many injured people doing so many injured things. Um, and, and so so anyway, uh, we've got to help people forgive themselves for being injured in childhood, for growing up injured, for parenting injured, because they were absolutely drawing from their own data that they were provided with, because we all learn from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone. And so one of the things that I you know, want to do uh, in, in family therapy uh, is I want to um, really empower the parenting role, and I want to help them recognize if they're injured as a parent and forgive themselves for being injured. And, you know, when I'm working with kids, I do psychological education because I want them to know these are the normal symptoms of trauma. You're not bad. You're not weak. You're not wrong. I know the, the system and the punishments and the judgments, it all stigmatizes us a lot. But, uh, you know, when I first thought about mental illness before I was a professional, I thought about the severe cases that you'd see in an institution. And I don't make light of that. It's tragic. Uh, but I didn't know that normal people could be mentally ill if they were hurt bad enough. I didn't know that if you got hurt bad enough and then you were, you know, uh, struggled with, you know, feeling like doing anything you wanted or needed to do. Or if you got so stressed out that it was hard for you to think. Uh, or, or focus. You were mentally ill in those moments. You were diagnosable. And to defeat the stigma, just understand we're all, we've all, you know, the pandemic taught us we all have mental health. Not everyone addresses it. Um, and, and so, um, but you know, there's, there's a diagnosis in there for people who don't like to use public toilets, especially like really gross ones at gas stations. That's diagnosable. Are you kidding me? I mean, so, uh, that that's that's laughable to me, um, but but the point is everybody's diagnosable, and trauma is at the root of a lot 
of uh, diagnosis. And a lot of people don't think about it when it's depression or when it's anxiety, when the word trauma is not in the diagnosis. Well, a lot of times PTSD was initially the DX, but uh, it, they no, at some point no longer met criteria uh, for post-traumatic stress. So we forget about those injuries. And so, so again, we want to help people um, forgive themselves. And why do you guys think it's important that we forgive ourselves for being injured? Why do you think that's important? Is it important? And you can chat it in or you can comment. I, I have thoughts on why I feel like it's absolutely imperative. Um, so no comments. So I'm going to say, well, you know, I think recovery from trauma, depression, anxiety, mental health struggles, addiction struggles, generational trauma is hard. It's hard. This is, a, you know, often one of the biggest challenges that people will ever face. And so, and if you feel like crap, if you're ashamed of yourself, if, you know, the world has taught you that you're bad and you just bought into it, you know, a lot of us injured kids, we got in trouble a lot and we're told we're bad. And if you buy into it, if you believe it, you know, you accept that you have a lesser value or that you're destined for bad things. If you accept that, then you're, you're doomed. You know, the worst thing you can do is hurt the way a person feels about themselves and their hope for the future. And so we've got to help people forgive themselves for doing exactly what injured people do, not to excuse it and say, all right, we'll just go on and keep, you know, slapping people around and doing drugs and alcohol and doing unhealthy things to yourself and to your family because you're injured. It's not an excuse, but it's an understanding. And people want to forgive themselves. You know, I had to go to a juvenile detention center when I was a kid. And they, you know, talked about how I was going to go to an adult facility and stuff like that. You know, a lot of us injured kids, we were wanting to climb out of that dumpster, you know, and we, but we felt when you feel low, you do low. They told me I was a bad kid. I said, all right, I'm a bad kid. Then all right, let's do bad, you know? And so uh, what we um, help, you know, we teach kids how to feel about themselves and we can, you know, families look to us, uh, you know, it's weird how many grownups will look up to you, like people your own age will look up to you because you're in the clinical role. And so, but you can guide those people to some improved self-esteem also. Um, and one of the things, you know, uh, the presentation that I was talking about earlier, improving outcomes means families healing together. I'm so tired of kids being treated like they're the one that's the problem, as if they can create the environment that they, that everyone is struggling in. Um, and, and so, um, so anyway, um, so I, I got more thoughts on that. But look, what's next, Will? Questions, comments, uh, as always, we'll try to check in with those. How we change. And so one of the things when I talk about ICC, I, I told you the first couple of the, the letters, identify. We want to identify injuries and in, uh, injured patterns of thinking and behavior, you know, injured norms, injured instincts. You know, if we've learned any dysfunctional norms, we've all been affected by racism. We don't always want to recognize that. It doesn't mean we're racist, but we've all been affected by it. And I think it's important for us to examine and look for our blind spots so we cannot perpetuate any further marginalization. Um, but when it comes to changing our brain, you know, we become injured first by trauma and chronic stress, but then we also become injured by our own injured behaviors the maladaptive coping, the drugs, the alcohol, the uh, excessive outlets that cause us to neglect our other needs. 
you know, and so it's those injured behaviors that make us more physically, emotionally, socially injured. Uh, and so if we can help people forgive themselves for doing injured and then start to insert new behaviors, um, what we do is we teach people new skills. We teach people new skills and I drill and I rehearse those skills. And some people think, well, I don't need a coping skill right now. I'm, I'm, I feel good today. Well, yeah, today's a good day to do it. You don't wait till there's a fire to do a fire drill, you know, because why you don't, you can't think, you know, when your stress uh, indicators, when your emotional, you know, uh, response is strong in your brain, you don't have as much access to your uh, intellect, to your decision-making, to your, um, you know, to your best emotional capacities. So, so anyway, uh, I'm going to teach people some new skills and we're going to drill, drill, drill. You know, because we hope to God we never need a tornado or a fire drill or, God forbid, a shooter drill. We hope to never need those things. And most of us made it through our lives without ever needing one. Um, and, 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 you know, my heart goes out to you if you didn't, if you had to go through a fire or a tornado or one of those other things. But, see, those things are still rare enough that we don't have to consider them part of our everyday lives. Your people skills will be a part of your everyday life. People are going to stress you out, tick you off. And so it's going to be really, really important that we prepare people. Because I didn't mention before, one of the symptoms of trauma is hypervigilance, hypersensitivity to sounds, to stimulation, to things that are happening to us and around us. And so if we don't help people understand their own hypervigilance and then do something about it, then they're going to be reacting, uh, you know, anxiety turns to agitation, turns to anger really quickly. Um, And so so it's um, but anyway, as we insert new skills, as we repeat those new skills, as we put because, you know, we can't help what data went into our young brain. We can't help it. It was not of our choosing. But the great thing about our brain is there's lots of space left in there. And now with consciousness, I choose the data that goes into my brain. And I'm going to put new skills, new information for new skills into my brain. And then I'm going to practice them. And the neat thing is, you know, the old habits, if you ever smoked or drank or, you know, uh, hit or did things that were unhealthy when you were uh, injured, um, Old instincts can creep back up. You know, smokers will tell you they every now and then, you know, even if they quit 20 years ago, they might crave a cigarette every now and then. Sorry if I'm triggering anyone. Um, But, uh, you know, but as we use new skills for coping, we give ourselves new neural pathways. We put the new data in our brain and we choose to use that data over and over and over again. And again, that forges new development in our brain. And that's development of our choosing. I didn't choose to be injured as a kid, but I choose to be well. I choose the development that takes place in my brain now. And that's power, folks. And that's power that we want to give to the injured family. And so so anyway, I I get kind of pumped up about this stuff because I see people getting better. You know, I'm always really excited to begin a new treatment process with an injured family. And I have to be careful about that, you know. Because as social workers, as mental health professionals, case managers, helping professionals, people don't come to us for good news. So it's like, hi, great to see you. I'm so glad to meet another injured person. That's not what I'm saying. But I like to see people get better. And we have to get excited and get people pumped up about their own treatment, about their own capacity for change.
Um, you know, I, so it's just, anyway, uh, did I cover that one, Will? Okay. Did I? Yeah. He said, okay. Kids with observations and words, it sounds like you feel blank. Oh, yeah. The, tell me the last three bullets. Uh, modeling important skills for coping expression uh, new ways of affecting yeah so okay so we're gonna model uh new skills because how we change our family you know i got a lot of kids uh who've not been taught good coping skills you know the do as i say not as i do and so parents need to cope too if you don't they won't and so it models important skills and it's an important way to understand that coping is power when you can change how you feel you know, you can you you can literally, you know, affect change within your own brain, within your own body, within your own mood. And it's not a change that anyone had to give to you. It's one something that you gave to yourself. And, and, and so I feel like that's power. Um, one of the things that's really uh, important, you know, this cognitive behavioral therapy stuff, I didn't understand for a long time. My very first therapy patient was a little old lady and she would talk as long as you let her. And then she always felt better after she was done. And I didn't understand why. She said, oh, thank you. I feel so much better. I said, you're welcome. But I didn't understand. But when our emotional you know, uh, response and our electrical neurochemical response is strong in the brain, talking is one way that's proven to provide some relief and perspective. Because when you remember an experience, you don't remember it in words. You typically will remember it in audio and visual files in your brain, data files. And when you have to put those data into words, you actually transfer the data. And you are actually kind of watching your own story roll down the conveyor belt. You are literally kind of learning from data that's within your own brain. You know, if you tell somebody about an experience that you've had, uh, and you've never, you know, told anyone about it before, or maybe you've only told that story a time or two. As you tell it, you're realizing things about your own experience, data that you possessed. You're still becoming aware of, and so, uh, so it teaches us. We learn from our own story. And again, when kids having strong feelings, again, we don't, you know, we don't feel in in words. Uh, we feel in electrical impulses, so but we need words to help understand them because words are from the cerebral cortex. W the cerebral cortex helps us plan for our emotions. And so, so anyway, uh, so when kids are mad, it uh, sounds like you feel, you know. Uh, so by uh, so the kids are learning by observation and exposure, you know. So uh, we're using words to 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 say our feelings and to talk about our experiences and to connect. You know, most traumatic injuries are human injuries, and I feel like human injuries require human solutions. Well, one of the things, um, as we're laying that foundation uh, for families, um, you know, I, I really want to do a lot of psychological education. I told you emotional intelligence is important. The injuries of trauma are important. Understanding our physical and emotional needs are imperative. And a part of understanding our physical and emotional needs is understanding that lifestyle is key. I mean, so key. There's a lot of people that don't eat any healthy food, don't hardly drink any water. You know, people that don't get any exercise, that don't have any pattern or, or regulation of sleep. And they wonder like why they feel like crap. Um, and, and so one of the things I'm a I'm a I'm a professional, and you're a professional, many of you. And so we're qualified to make some pretty hard recommendations, and we should in certain instances. If people don't mind the basics of self-care, 
you know, basic nutrition and hydration, basic levels of exercise, basic sleep, as well as recreation and, and, and healthy fun, healthy human connections. If we're not doing those things, we're supposed to feel bad. Our body is telling on us, our, our, our you know, our feelings are crying out for those needs. And so uh, so it's really, really important. We don't have to be perfect, but promoting healthy nourishment and, and uh, hydration is key. Sleep, obviously, you know, there are things that we can do uh, to help ourselves. You know, we can give ourselves the, you know, the required amount of time at least. And cutting ourselves short of sleep is really, really something. People that say, oh, I get six or six and a half hours of sleep, seven hours. If you need seven to eight hours of sleep, if you cut off an hour of the last cycle of sleep, which is often the deepest level of sleep, then you're often cutting off 40, 50, or 60% of the deepest level of sleep that you need. Uh, and so, so it's really important. Uh, I told you guys before about that. Uh, and exercise, you know, one of the things we work at desks, we sit down a lot. And so exercise is increasingly important in the inactive sedentary lifestyles of modern times, you know? And so food is energy and stress, you know, developed an ancient man to help us fight or flight, you know, when something was stressful. Now daily stress uh, isn't really hopefully going to require us to fight something or run away. Um, but our body is calling on us, is producing cortisol and adrenaline. Um, and, and so uh, so if we don't do something with that, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt our digestion. It's going to cause depression and fatigue. Uh, so, so it's really going to be important that we use our body like it's for. We're not meant to sit around all the time like, like we do. Uh, our body requires an energy equivalent to fight or flight. And if you've got post-traumatic stress, you absolutely require maybe a little more exercise than the average person, I dare say, because you got food energy and you got daily life stress, you know, for, you know, fight or flight that you can't fight or flight from. And then uh, you've got uh, stress that's post to a trauma. So I prescribe as a mental health professional, exercise is part of your medicine. It's absolutely part of your medicine. It burns off the additional cortisol and adrenaline that makes you feel anxious. And it boosts chemicals that make you feel good and happy and relaxed. Things that people take medications for um, because those are more profitable uh, than telling people to get off their butt and do something for themselves. And so, uh, but, but I, you know, not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. We all can do better with our self-care. And, you know, as real busy, productive people, people who want to save the world, you know, I think we can forget to build in some time for joy. Because I know we got to be productive all the time, but being unproductive sometimes will replenish and make us more productive when it's time to get back to it. Um, and, and like I said, um, you know, we're supposed to, um, you know, my mentor teaches that we got two jobs in life to play and to learn, you know, to get her done and have some fun. Uh, and, and so that's my philosophy. Um, so anyway, that's self-care and healing the lifestyle. People are really, we really do need to help understand depression, anxiety, physical, social, and emotional health problems spike when we don't take care of ourselves. And so, uh, you know, when you can get people pumped up about these things, I've had people decide on their own, they didn't need medication as much because now they're giving their brain and body what it needs. Uh, and so, and again, it's so empowering to give people the tools and they use them and then they feel better and they achieve that for themselves. Pretty cool.
One of the things as we're teaching families how to heal is, well, you know, communication uh, is up to 85% nonverbal and people don't know how to talk with one another. Communication is one of those pre-logic norms. You know, people are not walking around thinking, what is the best and most effective way to get my point across and to not hurt anyone's feelings? No, people don't do that. People just react and think and whatever comes to mind, no filter, you know. And so what we've got to do is help people understand some of the basics. Very intelligent people, you know, have studied communication, what does work, what doesn't work. We need to help people identify the barriers and the blockers, things that absolutely break communication down, hurt our feelings, make us feel defensive, make us feel scared, activate our nervous system, and give us less ability to think, reason, or respond. Um, and so uh, shouting at people, again, even if you know you're safe, if someone shouts and you know you're safe in your rational brain, your limbic system, your stress system uh, response spikes, and then all of a sudden, even if you know you're safe, you can't access your intelligence. You can't process information. So we want to help people quit yelling at each other. Um, and so that is going to flex the nervous system too often and create more anxious kids and families. Uh, and so uh, we're going to, um, you know, identify, you know, another couple of those barriers or blockers are things like critical or blaming statements. You know, up to 85 percent of communication is nonverbal. So we've really got to think about how we look and how we sound and be very calculated. This goes for families and parents. This goes for professionals because people with hypervigilant symptoms, you know, they're going to be extra reactive. So. We're going to really need to guard how we look and how we sound. And everybody else sees your face, you know, more than you see your face. So guard against resting, you know what, face um, and uh, and how that can affect an, a hypervigilant population. Um, so I got I stuck in there on the next slide, the iMessage formula. This kid told me, he said, iMessages, that's when your mom gives you a message with her eyes. I said, uh. Yeah, I've received a few of those messages, but um, but this is the iMessage formula where we're saying I, me, feel blank when what happens because of what happens and how it affects me. So uh, so what we've got to do is help people speak in calm and neutral tones because if we're speaking in neutral, uh, in nasty or judgmental or negative tones, then the brain is reacting a split second emotionally before the information is even being processed. So being neutral in our tone and saying, I feel blank when this thing happens because of blank and how it affects me. Instead of saying, well, you did this, you did this. Why did you? I feel frustrated when people borrow my things without asking because then I don't always know where they are when I need them. As opposed to, well, why do you always move my stuff now? I can't find it. You know, again, he's going to say, oh yeah, well, what about the time when you did the thing? And you know, then we're doing this and we're not hearing each other. Communication, people think positive communication is about only positive things, but positive communication is most important when there is a concern or a conflict, when we really need to hear one another. Because, I, and families, one of the things that I want to really get across is, I have a whole presentation on communication, but what I want to really get across is, do you believe the people in your house love you, like you, respect you, care about you, or hate your guts, wish you were dead? What, what do you think? Because if um, if you uh, believe that no one in your family is really out to get you, that y'all tick each other off sometimes, then that good. We're giving this the benefit of the doubt. Let's understand that sometimes we get on each other's nerves or affect each other in ways that we don't always mean to. And let's approach each other that way. 
And so I, I, I want to approach Will and say, I feel this way. And I'm hopefully pointing it out in a way that ah, I, I didn't realize. I didn't think about that, man. I'll, 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 I'll make sure I let you know next time, you know, or whatever. Okay. So our job as parents, you know, I look at, there's all kinds of different, you know, parenting styles and <coughs> dynamics, <coughs> pardon me, that I've heard of in different journals and studies and different things. But I look at two different kinds, in my opinion, the facilitator and the authoritarian. You know, because kids are little, I'm big. I can put them in that place and make them be there if I want them to be. But I, I want to sometimes lead them to the path of discovery. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm bigger, so I can make them do it. But the thing is, um, you know, the facilitator parent facilitates understanding and learning why things are important to be as they are. Uh, as opposed to uh, the the authoritarian parent is that you know because I said so kind of parent and you know I mean and uh, you know um, we don't need to explain and justify ourselves to on everything to kids um, but learning is important learning is important and um, you know a lot of times the authoritarian uh, the rule is based you know you you get uh, people to do it or else. You know, because there's going to be a bad thing that happens to you, and it's based a lot of times on the mood of the parent. Um, so what we want to do uh, is we want to present choices, natural consequences, <laughs> you know. Uh, and we want to do that when uh, it's, you know, when it's safe. You know, I, I told them not to stick the fork in the, no, no you know, uh, I told the toddler not to play in the road. No, obviously, we've got to provide appropriate, safe supervision. Kids require structure. You know, uh, one of the things I'm seeing in a lot of facilities, residential care facilities, staff sitting back at the table reading a comic book or re doing a crossword or doing their notes or whatever, and injured kids are left to just interact with one another, and we're wondering why they get in trouble. Um, injured kids require facilitation, structure. It, it, we can't just sit them in a room uh, and expect them injured kids not to be injured with one another. Um, so we've got to structure their activities. Stating calm limits. Uh, these are, you know, kind of parenting 101 things, things that I want to teach more in this parenting class. But there's a difference between stern and scary. I think that that's really important. Um, and so one of the things that I like to do is have a family discussion. Let's decide if you guys are not happy with the way things are going, let's make new rules. Let's see what everybody thinks the rule ought to be regarding curfew or homework or talking back or doing chores or whatever the problem is. You know, and, and kids, what do you think the rule ought to be on that? All right, well, what do you think the consequence ought to be for that? Okay, so you'd be choosing that consequence? Okay. So so anyway, but I, like I said, uh, I want to take parents out of the bad guy equation. Kids think we're just trying to spoil their fun sometimes. Our job as adults is to teach kids cause and effect. When I do good things, make good choices, better life goes better and safer. Uh, and, and when I make bad choices, the outcome is not as you know as good we want them to to do that and learn responsible decision making as opposed to don't tick me off you know um you know we want them to learn something other than don't make me the parent mad uh, because of course many of us were not always parented based on what our human developmental need was in that moment a lot of times it was based on how strong our parents emotion was or their stress or their mood or whatever else um so thinking about real human needs uh, we all got them, but we, you know, uh, on the bottom of the Maslow's pyramid, food, shelter, and clothing, provisional things. Uh, it's important that, you know, young and old people have more needs. 
You know, there's more vulnerability there. So without love, attention, value, and acceptance, we go off into the world injured and we don't even know it. We have unmet needs that can be preyed upon by society. You know, there's a lot of people, um, uh, you know, uh, that will grab the gangs, the problematic peer groups, people that, you know, uh, want to do bad things with kids and two kids, uh, prey on them so much easier because kids are going around looking for somebody to care and to pay attention to them. Uh, and a lot of, you know, gangs and dysfunctional relationships in many ways are meeting, you know, Absolutely. needs for people in very dysfunctional ways, but it comes at a cost. Um, and, and so uh, kids need uh, lots of ability to move and play. Uh, you know, people, we need to understand kids' development because a lot of kids are called hyper when they're supposed to move around and jump around and play. That's what they're supposed to be doing, to develop their body. We want to medicate that out of them. Disengaged parenting, I just want to say, you know, uh, in many ways, I see the cat food commercial on there. It says Sheba, you know. Uh, the let the let the mom lay there while the kid's bleeding. You you guys seen that commercial? Kid says, "Mom, I'm bleeding. Band-Aid's in the cupboard." I, you know, well, I butchered that. But she goes, "Get two. She doesn't want to get up because she's got her cat, and that's a cute little cat food commercial or whatever. But there, it's become almost trendy uh, and funny or humorous to be disengaged and off doing our own parenting thing. And one of the things I will say with the technology age. In the technology age, you know, smartphones hit our brains all different at different times. Most of us hit, had smartphones and our brains were already grown. A lot of kids are becoming, uh, are, you know, are being um, really retarded in their development. Uh, I'm not calling kids retarded, but they are being retarded in their social emotional development because now that kids have the technology to just, inundate themselves with parents are doing the same and there are a lot of them are very disengaged with one another so uh so so anyway um one of the things that we really have to do is work on the parenting environment one of the things that i want to do um is i want to empower the parenting role but i want to prescribe family therapy as an essential and an imperative part of the child uh, child's recovery Again, they kick kids out at the curb and they tell them, you know, you go in there and you talk to your therapist and you get better. You get better. And really, it, we, if we don't focus on the environmental factors that caused a, a child to struggle, um, then we're probably not going to be as effective. So I want to, again, align with parents. I want to form a real partnership with them whenever possible. Uh, but I want to help them see that I got one hour a week with your kid. How many hours you got? You know, uh, I've known them since they were 14. How long you known them? Again, your 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 connection, your influence is so important. And so uh, I, I want to help them uh, recognize what they can do to help their kids get better. Because when we all work on it together, when we work on our communication, when we work on our coping, uh, then we actually are going to have an ability uh, to, to see families healed together. So um, I guess I should stop. I got a little bit rushed there in the end, and I apologize. I always put a little bit more in the presentation than I have time for. Um, and so I welcome your questions, your comments, um, uh, your feedback. Um, let us know if you would like a copy of the presentation. Thank you, Jeremy. Does anybody have any questions? Feel free to unmute. If you guys um, want the copy of the PowerPoint, you can email info at newviewhealingsolutions.org. 
Um, I just want to tell Jeremy, thank you again. And, and we appreciate you joining us. Thanks guys. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072.